Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That's where the Bible really gets going in interesting ways. It's, in a certain sense, very real sense, all responses to what makes the people, what brings us together as a people, how do we survive, you know, what role does a kingdom play in all, how is that not everything, what do we do when that kingdom is defeated and conquered? And the biblical project, I think, is just this magnificent collaborative effort to prepare for that or to respond to it in very honest ways and also creative ways. Hey, everybody. I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and we combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are things today, Dan? Things are good. Uh, We've got a great guest today hawking a book that I have found very interesting. Uh, Why why don't you introduce (laughs) him, Dan? Yeah, so um, this is Jacob Wright. He is a professor of Hebrew Bible at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University uh, down in Hotlanta. And uh, welcome to the show, Jacob. Well, it's nice to be here, Dan and Dan. And um, it's not too hot today. It's actually like <laughs> maybe 45, 50 degrees. I guess that's oh, pretty wow. warm for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right that's- now it's uh, 31 where I am. So I imagine in Atlanta, the people are walking around in full on winter parkas at that temperature. Exactly. I had my gloves on to go out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as long as, uh, it's getting toward winter time. And so, uh, fewer people being carried off by mosquitoes. Uh, I imagine right now. That's true. I just, I know I got a call from the exterminator for the mosquitoes and they said, um, this is the only three months that they're not going to spray for mosquitoes, but they'll pick up in March. So <laughs> there you go. Well, hopefully that's because they're not around and not because yeah. they're just yeah. not worried about it right now. Um, Jacob, you just come out with uh, a book through Cambridge University Press, Why the Bible Began, an Alternative History of Scripture and Its Origins. And we've been, uh, Dan and I have been poking around in the book. Uh, and there have been a handful of books in recent years that have talked about this kind of thing, uh, both scribal practices behind the composition of the Bible, source-critical theories behind the composition of the Bible, uh, how the Bible got started. Can you tell us why uh, you decided to throw your hat into this ring? What was the impetus for this book? Thanks for that, Dan. Um, I mean, the why question I still think has not really received the attention it deserves. It's a question that we as scholars, I think, Dan, you would agree with this, to to explain some why something happens is a really tricky and messy problem. We can say what, where, who, when, but why? That's a philosophical issue. And it's like, why is there something rather than nothing? And it gets really to existential kinds of questions, but also to culturally um, difficult questions. Like, mm-hmm. it, does it say something about the superiority of monotheism or is it about Jewish genius or all these kinds of really culturally problematic things that we want to avoid. And we set that that aside that question. And I think to our detriment, um, because the, it, the why the answer to the why that we have informs the way we think, but we're not doing it in an explicit way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one, the, the thing that really informs us is an answer that had been provided long ago to the why question, and it's Wellhausen's answer. And he began, Wellhausen was this scholar in the late 1800s in Germany, and then your work engages it, him still, right? We all mm-hmm. are oh, working yeah. in the, in the shadows and in the, in the following Wellhausen. And what his, um, approach was to this why question is that what emerges in Israel and Judah is some kind of transition to religion, mm-hmm. right? From a political community to what he called the Judentum, Judaism, which was a new artificial construct. And it was a separation of religion from the political sphere. 
which mm-hmm. we might ad- appreciate in our democracies. But for Wellhausen, that was problematic because he wanted a he didn't want, you know, the French imperialism of the age. He was working after that where he wanted Germany to be a spiritual nation in which mm-hmm. religion and nature and all of that came together. And he kind of was poking his finger, not at Jews, really. He didn't have that much, but at Christians and at the church. And he did that by showing how the church is really the inheritance, uh, you know, claims the inheritance of what begins in the Hebrew Bible and how that is something that we need to avoid. So he had this idea of the why question. Well, the Bible exists because it's scripture for religion. There was this nation and it was destroyed and something new emerges from it, and it is what he called a cult, religious cult, or religious community, or mm-hmm. religion itself, and it's created by imperialism, where imperialism wipes out the place for individual nations to flourish. And I'll stop there, but for me, that really um, gets it wrong in terms of the, ter- the concept of nation. Maybe we mm-hmm. should talk about that. I was gonna ask you what you guys think of the term nation. <laughs> Well, I mean, you in your book, you talk about nation and you talk about how uh, the people that that coalesce around the Hebrew Bible cease to be a nation and you call them a people rather than uh, rather than a nation. Talk about that differentiation. Talk about why it's no longer we're no longer talking uh, about nation yeah. or, 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 well, state or, um, or or kingdom. I would say this. So there's two different kinds of things. Um, uh, Generally, I would say like a state is a kingdom or a country in the modern sense, um, like America, Canada, Venezuela. Those are countries, states. Um, They may have a nation within them, but we often confuse nation with state. Why would I say they have a nation within them? A nation is the people. And, and, um, Wellhausen had problems with the term nation in my mind, too, because he conflated nation with kingdom. And what I'm actually trying to argue, Dan, is that it's peoplehood is the term I use to avoid that problem with nationhood because it's so misunderstood. But Mm -hmm. really, nation refers to the people. And I call it a state of mind. It is a people coming together around memories, around the narrative, around future aspirations. And it's something that's very difficult for armies to conquer. Whereas a state has institutions and borders and armies and things that are very physical and that armies can actually dis- destroy. And what emerges well, from the destruction of ancient... Go ahead, Dan. Well, no, I was just going to say that the, the, the idea of, uh, of destruction of armies of stuff, th- this is central to, uh, to what happens, you know, where y- you talk a lot about... Uh, the Assyrian conquest and uh, and 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 you you mentioned specifically the primary factors behind the Bible's formation are political division and military defeat. So I yeah. wanted to, I, you know you started in with the okay. military. Let's let's talk about both of those <laughs> ideas. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thank you, Dan, for also spending so much time with the book. You really have gotten it very well. <laughs> Uh, do I say Dan A and Dan B? How does this work? <laughs> just, d- we'll just assume okay. that uh, they'll everybody will figure it out. It'll be fine. Dan Beecher, thank you for spending time with the book. Is uh, I appreciate also that you've all uh, brought these questions to a head, like nation and how does do we understand that? Um, briefly, again, Wellhausen is saying there is this nation and it gets destroyed, and then this religion forms, and I'm saying no, there's this kingdom or state. It gets destroyed, and what emerges is properly what we would call actually nation, even though that's misunderstood. So I call it people or peoplehood right. in mm-hmm. order to avoid that. So people really under- focus on the the kind of communal dimension. Communal well, if I may, not religious community, but political community. Yeah, if I may interrupt here, I think that's also a little more accurately when we look at the terminology that's used in the Bible. I mean, in Greek, the word we translate nation in the New Testament is ethnos. It's an ethnic identity. In, in Hebrew, you have amim, uh, you have goim, you have uh, mamlachut would be would be kingdom, but amim is used uh, synonymously for um, for nation, and that's and those are peoples. They're they're just different ways to 
kind of organize a sense of identity, a sense of Yeah, of and you're good at Hebrew. What is, what is the word, the Hebrew, biblical Hebrew word for religion? There, well, that's the, the thing. You bring up you bring up Wellhausen in, in my field, in the cognitive science of religion. Religion is something that developed between the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment. That is, this is not something, this is not a, a discrete sociocultural dimension that existed in the ancient world. And yeah. so to speak of this becoming a religion is thoroughly anachronistic on Wellhausen's part. Yeah, I part. agree with that. Thank you for that. And so got to find new terminology to think <laughs> about what they're organizing their understanding of identity around. And I think that's one of the things that, that you're yeah. striking out to do in this book is, is say, let's, let's not think about it in, in our modern terms, but in terms that are a little more native to the, yeah. the text themselves. And it's not just um, in terms of being more um, accurate in, of, in terms of the emic versus the etic. Emic refers to how the text or the communities describe it themselves, and etic is how we as scholars describe it. So emically, there's nothing, there's no concept, there's no word for religion, but there's something greater at stake than that. And that is we miss that the the making of the Bible and the why question and more of the how question should occupy our attention as societies, as communities, more than the what question. What is the what question? It's like what the Bible teaches. And the and Dan, you're doing such a great job in terms of, I've watched you grow over the years and I wanted to say, go, go, and you didn't need <laughs> me to say that because it's just taken off. What are you doing? You're addressing that what question, kind of. What does the Bible teach? How has it been misinterpreted? Um, how do we push back against that? And that's it's you see how it becomes a battlefield of mm -hmm. biblical teaching in society, whether it should apply to us or not. And what we miss by this is not just historically not getting it right in terms of, you know, the category, but also that what the biblical authors are doing in terms of connecting stories of rival communities, uh, bringing a, commun a defeated, traumatized community together around text and refocusing live, the attention on the lives of average folk, um, re-envisioning gender roles, um, making wisdom available for the whole people, not just for the elites. All of these things are not, you know, laid out explicitly so that one can argue or quote a verse, but it requires us to step back and to appreciate the whole. And when mm -hmm. we do that, um, and I'm not expecting um, everyone to get on board with this, but what I really um, encouraged by is that people across the globe find that to be useful. I had this began as a Coursera course, but long ago, and there are a lot of students in America and Europe, or maybe from Christian places uh, throughout South America, but there are a lot of students who were from. Muslim countries, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, as well as China and India. And their interest was that how and why question. Why does the Bible mm -hmm. exist? What is this about, this literature? And they uh, come at these texts with, that's quite remarkable of how you create a community around text and how you don't create a master narrative, but you connect multiple narratives to bring people together so that they have a common story and to affirm that we all go back to one family originally. Those kinds of things are really wonderful for them. What is not really wonderful or interesting to them is what the Bible teaches. Like, mm -hmm. okay, thou shalt not kill, we all agree on that, great. We don't need the Bible <laughs> to tell us that. Some people seem to, uh, even more so today, but uh, that's... Um I think that's a wonderful 30,000 30, foot view of, of why that question of why is so important here. And in yeah. a lot of ways, the question of why helps us to understand the what a little better uh, interpretation yeah. is guided by our own assumptions about, um, I'm fond of referring to rhetorical goals. What's the the function, the, um, the intended function of the text? But I, I wanted to go um, dive into the book a little bit. You You start off... Uh, each of the chapters uses uh, some kind of vignette, some character to kind of introduce the theme um, of a given chapter. And, uh, and you start off talking about really the, the history of the rise of Israel. But it's not a like for, for people who are uh, in scholarship, this is a history that uh, is fairly well known. But uh, 
I was I was struck by how reading through this, there are a lot of things about the history as you lay it out that would not be are not well understood among the general public. What do you think are some surprising aspects of the rise of Israel and Judah that uh, that someone in the general public might not be aware of? Uh, thank you for that. Um, yes, it is kind of a part of the book. It's 150 pages where I go over the rise and the fall before I get to really the post-fall place where everything starts to happen. And like so many books, you know, those first chapters, uh, you get into the weeds and you have to kind of do some boring stuff. And people have criticized. I see like all <laughs> Amazon reviews like, man, those first chapters are difficult. <laughs> To, to get into because it's so many facts and figures and so forth. Here's the takeaway I think that's going to surprise people. Um, there are many different points, but one would be that Israel and Judah were never together, and that these are two very different countries. They could It could have easily been Israel and Moab. There's nothing you know within Judah that um, goes back ethnically to a common population or com- some kind of monotheistic uh, sensibility that they shared or anything. It's it's quite coincidental that Israel had um, really uh, overshadowed Judah and then placed one of its own members, Atalia, a wonderful queen, who on the throne and really had subordinated Judah to its interest, and that then Judah. W- regretted that, resented that, and um, Judah really probably would have been very, I call it Judah's jubilation, would have been happy to see Israel fall. We see that in various texts. And um, this is not, this division is one of the, like you pointed out, Dan A., Dan Beecher, the Mm -hmm. division is really one of the most important reasons why um, we have a Bible. All All countries, all kingdoms were defeated. So why, for me, the question is like, we got to get defeat. That's an essential component, but it's not sufficient. There's meaning that there's other factors. Mm-hmm. Defeat, without defeat, there is no Bible. But what's the other more sufficient factors? And that's the, this division, this relationship between Israel and Judah. And I'm building here on Dan Fleming's work um, from NYU, where he really shows how Judah, it's, it's, he calls his book The Legacy of Israel in Judah's Bible. And the Bible mm-hmm. we have is a Judean product. The difference between me and Dan Fleming, whom I really adore as a scholar, is that he would say that there is some commonality among the populations. And I'm saying it's easier to say, no, it's purely political. And the first move in terms of affirming some kind of union was a political affirmation, meaning that Judah and Israel were once united under David and Solomon, which I argue is totally fictional. It's an attempt by later Judean kings from Hezekiah and Josiah to say what we're doing, what we're asking you to do as the defeated northern population to join our fold is something not new. What we're doing is going back to the way it was and the way it was supposed to be. Yahweh, our God, chose David and Jerusalem and all of that, and you guys have left the fold so you can Mm -hmm. return now. We're going to make uh, Israel great again, right? Yes, make Israel <laughs> great again. And it's going to be from our Judean's perspective. It's not even going to be Israel itself doing that in a real sense. I would complicate that a little bit by saying that the biblical text that really, um, that we appreciate most, the stuff about the patriarchs and the matriarchs and the exodus and so forth, doesn't come from Judah. That's the story. The, the Judean stories are the Davidic stories and the stuff in the book of Kings. And it's a very, it's placed way back in the narrative. And the stuff that is, goes back to some older Israelite stuff is the stories of peoplehood, of liberation and so forth. And so why we have that kind of, if you would think that it's just a Judean Bible, um, the Judean kingdom would have then shaped it by by beginning their narrative with David. David is the one who brought us to the land. David liberated us from bondage, but they have Yahweh. They're trying to think of their past without a monarchy, a native monarchy. And and that explains how David gets pushed back and bracketed so that whatever the kingdom becomes, um, it also falls and one can have an expectation that there can be a 
enduring political community, some kind of identity, it doesn't depend on our political power. It doesn't depend on the Davidic dynasty. So it's very much, I think, an Israelite Bible, and what and the Judeans are picking up on stuff that had been begun, that had begun among the defeated northern population 130 years earlier. And and maybe some of the scribes from the north, I know you know a lot about this, Dan, uh, had maybe come down after the destruction. And maybe they are um, continuing to work, even if they're working. These were great scribes. These were This is from a great kingdom. And I think that they probably would have found employment in the Davidic, the Davidic court. And mm-hmm. so they probably listen. This is how I imagine. They're probably listening all day to the Davidic kings saying, you know, with this propaganda and in the nighttime writing their text about we can be a people without a king. And yeah. um, I know that's speculative, but w- what do you guys think? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But well, I, th- I think that's well. That's there's a lot to to go off of there. But but yeah, I think it it makes sense that well the the northern kingdom was a much larger, much more complex kingdom than the south, and it it only makes sense to me that the south would try to appropriate whatever resources and uh, and experts they could from from the north uh, following uh, their fall in 722 BCE. Uh, and I liked how you divided the uh, the stories into a uh, a people's history and a palace history. Um, could you talk a little bit about the origin of that and how that fits into the rubric you're developing yeah. of an, an identity that can outlast the destruction of a kingdom? Outlast, that's right. Yeah, thank you for that word. So the common approach to the, the narrative, the, what's called the primary narrative from David Noel Friedman, and a lot of us still use that. What is the primary narrative? It begins in Genesis with the creation of the world. It ends not like in Christian Bibles uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah, the return. Mm -hmm. Ezra and Nehemiah is in a totally different uh, section of the canon, and it's called a late section called the writings, the Ketuvi. Mm -hmm. It ends with this, the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile. So creation to exile. Kind of like the, the banishment out of Eden, east of Eden, that kind of exile is then recapitulated on the national level. So that whole narrative has often been understood as um, in terms of the Pentateuch and you have the JPD stuff, and then you have this thing called the Deuteronomistic history, which begins in Deuteronomy and it continues on. And that's the second section. And they were brought together. And um, I find that difficult for various reasons. I find it also better just for practical purpose to distinguish between um, a large block of text. It's not that they all came from the same hand or from the same period, but the history in Genesis is a history of how we got to this land and uh, building on the work from some European scholars, um, my doctor father included uh, in Germany, that Genesis is its own story. And I think everybody kind of agrees that now about this, that it's a separate story than the Exodus story. And so we have the Genesis and Exodus story. What, what they have in common is thinking about a people without a king. And the Exodus story continues into the book of Joshua, where they take the land by storm without a king. And the, the, the enemy is, consists totally of kings. We don't know all their names. We don't know much about their people. And on the other hand, there's this kind of citizen's army and militia guided by Joshua, who is a non-king. And so all of that has this 
orientation away from the palace. And I call it the, the people's history. It consists of various blocks. The palace history is, it begins in the book of Samuel. And it's a problem because the book of Joshua ends with this high point of like, we conquer the land, choose this day whom you shall serve. We're going to serve the Lord and it's all going to go well. The book of Samuel begins with the Philistines and the Ammonites. They're in, the, they're in a supreme role and they're subordinating Judah and Israel and Israel and Judah are once again in bondage in a certain sense. And um, who, who re rescues them? Saul and David, they are the saviors. So that's a very much a palace-oriented history that repl doesn't replace the deity with David but it makes in the, in the dynasty, but it makes the dynasty to be the instrument of the deity. And I think that palace history have ha had to at some level be older than the people's history because the people's history re responds to it in so many ways. It says the salvation, the word is the same word we have for Jesus, Yeshua, you know, salvation, the Savior. The Savior in our history, the primary one, was our God, and he did it. Yahweh, building on your adoptive mother, uh, Dan, is a male God. I firmly agree. No, it's not God as a, in a general kind of title sense, but Yahweh, this personality, is the one, not David, who saved us. He's our primary savior. He's mm -hmm. also not connected to any kind of political faction so that we can come across our own divisions and affirm our unity in covenant with this deity. And this covenant is going to take precedent, precedence over any kind of covenant that the, the deity makes with the Davidic dynasty or the palace. And so those are the two sides. You you mentioned that you think the uh, the palace history probably comes before the people's history, yeah. but certainly some of these stories are coming from um, deep antiquity in in the north, uh, as yeah. far as we can trace them. So the the suggestion here is that these are these are collections of stories that have been inherited for generations and generations that are being given new life by arranging them within this narrative framework so that they can function to to kind of set up a trajectory towards where we want to be when things go south. I love that, a uh, new life, yes. It's a, it breathing some new life into these texts that would have been buried in the sands of time mm -hmm. if they had not been. And why would we say that? Because all of, you know, one of the most important inscription that we found for the history of Israel, I hope you agree with me that's on Dan, is the Meshestela. We found it in the ground, right? Um, mm -hmm. We found the archives of Nineveh and all of the great empires in the ground. Why? Because they had not undergone that undergone that transformation, no. that that breathing new life into them from a perspective of people, of peoplehood, of a community on that had been, um, you know, faced great destruction and devastation, yeah. and they lived on the margins of the civilizations that controlled the world. And they, that's, I think, where a great innovation begins is on the margins. And for me, this is not about trying to say anything about the Bible's authority in society or its inspiration, but just looking at a, a great example, perhaps one of the most impactful bodies of literature ever written and, and showing its cultural human relevance to communities on our margins who are rethinking the way things should be done and mm -hmm. doing some of the most important stuff where our centers of civilization uh, could be eclipsed by that very easily. And I think for a text that comes from a community that historically has been fairly marginalized and um, and in many ways oppressed and was very small in these stories that it's telling about itself uh, anciently, its survival is a testament that they they were onto something. Yeah. With the way they were structuring their understanding of their shared identity and including taking these probably independence cycles of uh, Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of others, and and setting them up to tell the story of uh, a single lineage that is now uh, what governs the the whole um, national or, or people's identity. I, I and think that the, connection of those, like you, I agree with you, those kind of probably independent, independent cycles that have antiquity of some sort and, and serve different communities and represented them, um, that the real biblical move, if you will, what makes the Bible the Bible is the connecting of the dots. 
these, mm-hmm. the, the connection of these texts, the formation of something new from them to breathe new life in them, if you will. But um, they already were kind of peoplehood focused. But what what's really remarkable is I had just published a piece on the Sojourners for Thanksgiving. We were this is a couple of weeks now after Thanksgiving, um, and uh, you know at Thanksgiving time. I've always find it really weird when we like perform the pilgrims pageants as if we all <laughs> go back to the Mayflower and that mm-hmm. Mayflower narrative has become the kind of master narrative. And we haven't found ways to like tell the story as the biblical authors did. And they said, well, it's not the Genesis story or the Exodus story. It's both. And it's not the David story. It's both Well, we're going to, it's not all equal, right? There are some decisions made, and that's necessary. There can't be a narrative without some kind of decisions being made. But what what really makes it so wonderful I, for me is that um, the will there to connect, to include, to we think of the Bible being so exclusivistic and exclusionary, and that's there's definitely that other, and the problem to the other um, is really present. But the will there is to say, not this law code or that law code, both law codes. And you all figure it out how it works. <laughs> you come to the text and you figure it out because it's all about the text. It's all about us. And we have to find some modus vivendi for coming together and overcoming our rivalries if we're going mm-hmm. to survive. I, I had a question, something that I've I've been mulling over in my in my own research that that I anticipate will turn into something at some point. It strikes me that the the diminutive size of Israel um, or Judah might have been an asset in its development of this narrative, in its preservation of its uh, its ethnic identity. Because I I don't Say imagine more about that. that's very intriguing. Because I don't think it would have been possible for a gigantic empire like Assyria or Babylon or or any of these. I don't think this project would have gotten off the ground if they were dealing with such a stratified, gigantic uh, empire. I, okay. okay. So I, I think... I the, thought you meant that if it had been the other way around, that Judah had been conquered first, and mm. it, Israel would never have... Israel never laid claim to Judah's legacy. Judah was this right. small kingdom. So it had to be the, the greater kingdom, the north, to be conquered first because Judah had been in its shadows and it said, we are the new Israel. And this mm-hmm. is like the first supersessionism, although <laughs> as a Jew, I think this is okay, supersessionism, I, you know, what have you, but it has a longer history. They're saying we are the new Israel, just like the Christian yeah. church will say we are the new Israel, what have you. But you're right about the great empires. They had only known success, triumph. They had maybe lost some of their provinces. What they weren't prepared for was the day after. And when mm. you're small, you already think about, you already think of yourself in terms of the David Goliath mentality. We are Davids, not Goliaths. And we have to prepare for the next day. And what makes the Bible the Bible also is like we see in Jeremiah, there are a lot of people pushing back against that. Not because they said, no, we're not small, we're big, but rather our God is big. Jerusalem mm-hmm. is big in the sense that it's never going to be destroyed. And that, that continues on into modern Israeli politics and Jewish politics around kind of this fervency that there's something that's always going to save the day, We're something special, and others saying, we need to figure out a way to, to, to persist and endure. We're very tight. By the way, Jews are like 0.1% of the population. So that kind of any idea that we have something special on our side can get us into a lot of trouble. And and that goes way back to Jeremiah, who says, it, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And he was put in jail for pro- proclaiming heresy. And uh, I think it's just too relevant to today that I just... It, it gives me goosebumps sometimes. <laughs> Can I, I'm going to jump in uh, as the as the non-scholar here in the room and just uh, I, I kind of want to go back to a, a, a basics thing because I know a lot of our listeners don't have the background in uh, in this history that you two have. Uh, so Are we getting too much in the weeds. <laughs> well, you know, you're in the it weeds, happens, but we're, yeah. but it happens, and and believe me, lots of our listeners are loving it. Um, but I would like to talk uh, about sort of the history that led up to uh, all of this stuff that you've been talking about. You know, you I want to go back to this military defeat idea and why you yeah. think it's so vital 
to the creation of what we now call the Bible. Good, 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 good. Thanks, Dan Beecher, for that, because we have focused now on the division. The stuff that Dan and I have been getting into the weeds about are these the relationship between Israel and Judah. And that's missed by many readers of the Bible, primarily because the term Israel or the name Israel can refer to the people of Israel, but also the state of Israel. So uh, readers of the Bible just don't get how extensively the division between the North and South shape, shapes the Bible. And um, But defeat, yes, that's the bigger and perhaps more meaningful one. Although the North-South division, I think, is so relevant to what goes on in East and West Germany and North and South Korea and so forth in terms of real artistic and intellectual political creativity, um, North and South in the U.S. too, uh, elsewhere. But defeat, right? Um, picking up on what we just said about Assyria, um, when you're not prepared for defeat, when you're not small, um, and all you know is really triumph. Like if America were to fall today, I don't think that it would be possible for an American people to persist because we're just so we rest on our laurels in terms of imperial power and statehood and all of that, that there is there's not a, a kind of plan B of um, what do we do when we're no longer militarily superior to others. And that goes for a lot of countries. But it doesn't go for a lot of small countries. A lot of small countries are much more focused on education, like uh, in Europe and elsewhere, where they don't have strong militaries. So defeat is central. And defeat is, for me, also the most intellectually stimulating part of this whole project and the Bible. And there, was, there were a lot of communities that, who, that were defeated, as we noted. And what the biblical authors are doing is not trying to consign that to oblivion. And I noted some examples that when peoples were defeated and conquered, um, you were prohibited from speaking about it. Hmm. And think about like Trump losing the election. You just deny it. No, we didn't lose. We didn't lose. We were, it was robbed from us. And um, Germany after World War One, they were blaming Bolsheviks and Jews saying, we didn't lose World War I. They sold us out. They stabbed us in the back, this back, stab in the back myth. And so many countries that just are problematic politically and political programs like Trump's just have an inability to admit to things and to grow from them and to say, okay, we really lost. What now? And the biblical authors perhaps are making defeat even more than it actually was historically. The Book of Lamentations, which is like the most graphic description of the devastation, some of it goes back to the early days, but some of it goes, you know, late. It's been, it continued to be written for centuries. And what, so why? Why are they continuing to make this defeat so central? It's because they want their readers to know that there was a beginning to something and an end to it, and that was the kingdom. That society has been, there's no going back. We have felt this deep and we have to continue to feel it deep if we're going to persist in our project of thinking beyond the state, beyond the kingdom. And that's where the Bible really gets going in interesting ways. Well, how do you think about beyond uh, the state? What does it mean to be a people? People had not asked that question. And I don't know if the biblical authors are even conscious that they're asked conscious of the fact that they are asking that question. But what makes this whole corpus so coherent is it's, in a certain sense, very real sense, all responses to what makes a people, what brings us together as a people, how do we survive, what it, you know, what role does a kingdom play in all, how is that not everything, what do we do when that kingdom is defeated and conquered? And the defeat and the reinvention of oneself, I think, um, if the, the book is getting some traction, it's because that speaks to people. That speaks to people saying, okay, I hit a brick wall. Mm -hmm. Or we as a community hit a brick wall. And um, or we're facing devastation as a society and as a globe. And um, how do we think about the day after? And why is it so difficult, as Lear writes in his work on the Crow Nation? Why is it so difficult for us as civilizations to imagine our own ends? Why can't we 
deal more with that. And you would think, well, there's a lot of kind of sci-fi literature that deals with that. But yes, and maybe that's some of them where the most creative stuff is being done in terms of thinking about the day after. But as as thinkers, as theologians, as philosophers, as biblical scholars and so forth, we really spend very little time thinking about what happens when the stuff that we take for granted is no longer here. What are we going to do? And the biblical project, I think, is just this magnificent collaborative effort to prepare for that or to respond to it in very honest ways and also creative ways. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely. That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of and get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I wanted to I wanted to come back to something you said earlier. Um, you talked about the Mesha inscription, and you mentioned Moab earlier. It could, it could have just as uh, likely been Israel and Moab. Yeah, but they're they're both what we might call secondary or territorial states that are rising in the shadow of these of these larger empires as there are some power vacuums around them. Um, there's an interesting part of the Mesha inscription where Mesha is explaining why Israel was able to subjugate Moab um, to vassalage. It says Chemosh was angry. Uh, with his land, uh, and this is this is a way to account for defeat. But it's a very familiar one for yeah. biblical writers as well, because uh, Dan, you you might have been asking for like a fifth grade kind of uh, his, <laughs> historical outline here, where we have Assyria comes in and destroys the northern kingdom in 722 BCE and and leaves the south. But then just 120-ish years later, then we have the Babylonians coming in and, and taking out uh, the kingdom of Judah as well. And each time, the authors who are responding to this are appealing to some of the same rationalizations. God was angry with us, and they come up with the things that they were doing wrong in, in the previous years. But once we get into the exile, this is kind of... This is uh, where the rubber hits the road, and this is where we see the Bible really coming together and, and kind of pointing in a, in a direction. Um, could you talk a little bit about when we get to the exile, when we're starting to bring things together, when the project is taking shape, what are the rationalizations for why all this has happened and what are the yeah. ways forward? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and sorry, Dan Beecher, that I haven't, that I kind of lost the thread of that question. You wanted to know <laughs> no, no, the basic fine. stuff about We'll we'll get to that because it we're getting now to this. I do want to defend. I do I do want to say something, Dan. Uh, just before, right before you answer that, uh, I went to fifth grade and none of this was covered. Uh, <laughs> this is not fifth grade stuff. So, uh, in in defense of of those of us who don't know all of this stuff, uh, but yes, please yeah. go on. I know we we assume so much, uh, and um, it's hard for us to write. I don't know about you, Dan, to like. Uh, put ourselves in the shoes of people who have not 
read the Bible all their lives and know all about that and, and scholars and stuff. But um, thank you for reminding us to keep it uh, straightforward. So Dan has, has drawn attention to this Meshestella that was pulled out of the ground and King Mesha from Moab says, um, we suffered defeat, um, but it was because our God was angry with us. And then we look at the Bible. This was so groundbreaking because when scholars said, oh my God, the, the uh, literally, um, how has uh, Mesha picked up biblical theology, the theology <laughs> of punishment, divine punishment for somehow being, you know, the they becomes angry at some kind of behavior. And if you think about the Bible as thou shalt, thou shalt, and if you don't, then you're going to face exile, punishment, and all of that, the prophets, the laws, and so forth. That's very fundamental to it. And um, But the Bible has, like Dan says, also various ways of dealing with that. And what makes the Bible different from the Mesha Stella is that Mesha tells that about the past, and then he moves to the present of triumph. And the Bible flips that on its head. So the triumph begins with the Exodus, the salvation that Yahweh brings, but also David and Saul and Solomon and all the great kings, but it goes down. And it's as if Mesha talked about, we used to have a great kingdom, but now we're defeated. The end. And made a huge monument about that. But the Bible is not just a, that kind of monument. It's much more massive. And it does it on grand proportions. And it develops that theology in many different dimensions and really embellishes it and makes it grand and all kinds of stuff. And the reason why is because it's not coming from a palace. It's coming from a defeated people. And they are picking up on things that we can see that are familiar to their neighbors, but they are taking them in new directions. And um, it all emerges in this, in this time between uh, 722, where the northern kingdom, the Israelites, not Israelites, but the Israelians, we would say, kind of the people of this kingdom called Israel, the house of Omri, when it was defeated, and then 130 years continues where now Judah is left alone in the Levant, Southern Levant, and it and it really rises and it takes over a lot of different kinds of operations that Israel had long performed. Uh, but then it it too is defeated. So it had resisted what was going on in the north about defeat, saying we can be a people even without our kingdom in Samaria and so forth. That was on the other side of this Davidic dynasty saying, you need to join us in Jerusalem. Yahweh chose the Davidic dynasty and all this territorial power statehood kind of thing. And that's kind of this tension in the Bible. But what happens is the Judean kingdom is itself destroyed and they have to gulp. And they say, okay, so what do we do now? Well, we're going to pick up that project of the Northern kingdom and say, we don't need necessarily to have a kingdom, a dynasty, even a temple uh, to, to persist and to, to see a future. And that's why this text becomes this great grand monument to defeat and something that's portable and something that people can take with them into exile and all, always remain on the same page, whether they're divided and create a public that is interested in reading text and makes text the center of their lives and on and on and on um, in terms of just something that begins in terms of, well, we can be a people to, well, how does it, what does it mean to be a people? And the books of Proverbs and Song of Songs and Psalms and all kinds of different things like Esther and Ruth discuss these matters from that, that begins with that question. Yeah, you do. You talk about how uh, you, you say that you have basically two th central theses, one being that uh, the Bible, as you put it, is to be appreciated as a project of peoplehood. And the second is that it's fundamentally a pedagogical one. Um, talk a little bit about how it's meant to be used, how the, how the people who uh, inherited 
this project were meant to uh, to use it because you know we were talking about religion is a newer concept. We're, we're not talking about yeah. a religion idea. So what is it? How are we supposed to use it, or how were they meant to use it? Thank you, Dan. Once again, Dan Beecher for like getting to the larger question that that we would otherwise miss, and that is a big part of the book. The Bible is what is the Bible? It's a curriculum, is what I would suggest. And um, so, how's the Book of Psalms a part of the curriculum? What's a curriculum? I know that's anachronistic, but I call it a pedagogical project in terms of what shapes a people without a kingdom without power is some kind of larger narrative, some kind of education around common text and laws and songs and love poetry and and what have you, wisdom, um, and that what is expected to, to be in, in inculcating themselves in that tradition so that they can be part of a project. And education is the key to the kingdom, if you will, right? And um, to be able to participate in public life, one needs to be able to like draw on various um, traditions and laws and stuff that the that public appreciates. And that then changes the orientation of from the battlefield where one gets honored by being a, just a great soldier to one who is really well-educated or scribes or teachers or parents and families and different kinds of things where um, they are commanded to teach their children and the book of Proverbs, you know, goes back to this ancient curriculum, but it was a curriculum for elites. And, um, you know, my son, listen, well, what was my son? Dan knows this very well. You know, in the Egyptian wisdom literature, the father was a teacher, wasn't really the physical father, and the son was the student. And what happens in the book of Proverbs is that they actually become biological. The father, because it's how it goes is, my, my son, listen to the words of your father and the Torah, the instruction of your mother. It's mother and father who are now part of this. And this wisdom is now being becoming part of the family life, not the court life, not the elites who are going to study with fathers who are going to train them for their careers in um, some kind of some kind of elite activity. And so this wisdom is being democratized, if you will. It's become a, an educational curriculum for uh, average folks that everyone should be wise, going back to Deuteronomy, that what's going to make us wonderful and honored and on the on the world stage is not our military power, power but our wisdom and our devotion to learning. And, um, and I think that just goes a long ways to explaining the coherence of the whole. And people would say, well, what does Song and so song of Songs have to do with education? And there are some outliers, and I, but I address those, and I think they really are very much a part of the education process. You know, love poetry. Um, by the way, I think all of us had in school, like we had to learn Shakespeare sonnets. Um, but that's not really the point here. The, what Song of Songs is doing is trying to model an I-thou relationship, a real intimacy between two individuals in which the woman is equal with the man and it lends itself to actually uh, non-hetero relationships. But the most fundamental thing is that a society cannot exist unless two people can really come together in some deep intimacy that you can't have between three people. And that part of learning how to do that through poetry so much wonderful work being done in biblical studies on the educational capacity of poetry, how poetry shapes us as readers in a deep way. And so I think I, I think I've made a good case for that the Bible is a curriculum. I will say that I'm building on a little bit of work in a little bit on David Carr's work at Union Theological Seminary in his book, Writing on the Tablets of the Heart. Mm -hmm. What I'm pushing back against is that he sees it as a Hellenistic elite project. So that the Bible is Hellenistic literature for the training of male elites. And I, mm -hmm. I think that misses a lot of it. It goes, it's much more, there are parts of it that are older than the Hellenistic period that have that education. And we don't have to like explain 
the idea of curriculum and pedagogical project by always making it derivative from something else. I think people's on the margins are always going to gravitate to the necessity and the, the, um, the advantages of education. You think of like colonized peoples and how they turn to educational projects because they need to come together around something. And, and so the point here is we don't need to appeal to the Hellenistic influence to explain why the Bible is so pedagogically shaped. Does that help, Dan Beecher? I, I think that's great. I think that um, one of the things that you were just, you've been sort of skirting around the edges of, but but your book talks a lot about is the idea of gender of women in, in this in this society, you you know you're, you're the last part. The last part of your book uh, is very much uh, you you have some focus on that. Talk a little bit about what what's going on there and and how you, and 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 what your points are uh, with that. Thank you for that again, Dan Beecher. Big issue: women and why are they so prominent in the biblical narratives? But also, like we just noted in the Book of Proverbs and wisdom literature, and the Book of Ruth, a whole story about women and widows, ending with Esther, the queen who saves the day, and on and on. Song of Songs, and there are many problematic aspects uh, related to gender. Um, I, ha- I teach a course called Text of Terror, and uh, one of the Text of Terror that uh, that I deal with is Genesis 2, the creation, or, or Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of a binary um, kind of sexuality, a gender. And um, so there are problematic aspects related to this. By the way, many people wouldn't see, think of Genesis 1 as a text of terror. It's a beautiful text. But for non-binary folk, it, it, it's problematic. And um, But the Bible, on the other hand, is doing really wonderful things in terms of gender. It really shows how women all have courage that like Miriam has courage where Moses is has none. And who am I? And I can't do this. And Miriam had saved his skin as a baby by just going up to the queen, the Egyptian queen, and finding a solution. And the midwives who resist the decree of the Pharaoh and save these babies. And the women in Genesis who are so much more um, savvy than the men. The men are kind of orchestrated. Their lives are pulled to and fro by women. And the authors are, uh, are celebrating that. And they will say stuff like in the book of Ruth, you know, you are like um, our matriarchs who built the nation. It was our matriarchs who did this. And um, so why is that? Why do we have all of that going on there? I think there are two uh, explanations for it. And that is, first of all, these are men, male scribes writing for males. And there might be some women writing. We have evidence that um, folks from Egypt and Mesopotamia, that there were girls in some of the schools in the young but that's for the most part, there is just these are men writing for men, male scribes writing for other male scribes. They're using women, though, to show um, their readers that we have to find a new way of living in the world. We have to, um, first of all, we can't afford to have women in the shadows. Um, if we're a small people, we can't afford to have 50% of the population just at home. They need a role in public life, and the home also needs to be a part of public life. It needs not to be seen as something secondary. That's the stage. That's where Genesis begins, in the tents, in the homes. The relationships between mother and father and children and other wives and all kinds of problems, right? Um, That is because you're not a kingdom. You're not an empire that can say the woman's role is to produce male children to go out and fight for us. And that is like Assyrian women had a lot less agency than the provinces where they didn't have all that that kind of aristocratic role of producing children. And you have women who are farmers who have a lot. They Even in our society today, um, women in um, rural areas have a lot more ability to do things that one doesn't do properly in, in a more kind of regimented society. Setting that aside... That second role is of women is to um, show these male readers how to um, think of themselves, that we are Davids, not Goliaths. 
Um, we have to find a way of diplomacy, of cleverness, of indirect approach. We have to learn how to be Esthers and not Mordecais. We have to learn how to be Debras and not Gideons and not Jephthahs. What is Deborah? Deborah is like a mother bear who comes out and defends her cubs, but she's not about, it's all about my name. Whereas Gideon is so infatuated with his own name and Jephthah and, and Sam's, all of this is just these male egos that threaten to, to, to really um, to, to swallow up the nation and leave nothing in its stead. And if we can refocus our attention on how women have always survived in a world in which the cards are stacked against them, um, perhaps we can also survive as Jews and Judeans as, and as a defeated population in a world where we don't have that power. And does that make sense? I, I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I think it, I think, yeah, I think that's great. Um, I'm, I'm building, by the way, not on that second point, um, on some work by others who have who have done some amazing stuff in terms of thinking about women as not as more of how men should learn how to behave, learning hmm. meaning, in like. Jacob is a man of the tent and he's a mom's boy in a real sense. And Esau is the father's boy who goes out and hunts. And so what is it about Jacob's personality? It's his indirect approach. It's that he lies and deceives and so forth that gets him into trouble, but it's also he's an underdog and he's a survivor and that one has to learn um, that the kind of honorable approach or we're going to march out and duke it out. We're not going to win doing that. We have to be Jacob. We have to find Jacob is identified with his wives and his, and his flocks and so forth. Esau comes at him with his 400 men and we, there's no women in the, and those two sides so that many um, non-Jews have seen Jews as feminized as, mm. um, as, somehow their indirect approach, this is, of course, much later kind of thing, but it owes itself to the Bible in many ways of kinds of ways of working the world as somehow being more effeminate. And they've, they've disdained that. Whereas um, if they have, if there's any truth behind that, it's, there is a, um, an understanding that not everyone can afford to be just, just let's duke it out and, um, and if we can't, then we need to find another way of living. Well, I think that's wonderful. Uh, I, that's all we have re really time for. Uh, Jacob, thank <laughs> you so much for joining us. Uh, do tell us, how, how can people find your book? Where, where, can, they, where can they go to, uh, to, to grab a copy and, uh, and, and check it out? Yeah, it's on Amazon, I guess, is the, probably the easiest way. It's going to be, and this was not planned, by the way. This is a Cambridge University book. And as Dan knows, Cambridge University books are not you know, trade books, usually they don't go, they don't get reviewed and shared and I don't get to go on Dataverse Dogma for some kind of monograph. <laughs> <laughs> but this is uh, something that took off because I think it's, um, I tried to make it more accessible and now you can go and get it now at Borders and perhaps Costco and stuff like that. And it's uh, on Amazon and um, leave me a review. I read it. Um, Yes, I am hawking the book, like you said, Dan Beecher. Um, but the reason why there is because I put my heart and soul on this, and I think it's I want people to to take a look at it and see if it's helpful. I think a lot of people are finding it helpful. A lot of people who are not Christians and from across the globe who are accessing this, and all of the uh, anything I make is going to the Atlanta mission here. And if you can help the Atlanta mission on your own, it's a, I'm Jewish, and this is a Christian organization, but they're doing really amazing work and it's about for me though also learning about the bible how to how to read the bible in a way that's more helpful than just what the bible teaches mm -hmm. i love that and uh, one of the things i noticed immediately with the book that i think makes it a lot more accessible is the chapters are quite short they're like 10 to 15 page chapters they're not incredibly long it's not incredibly dense and so if uh, somebody's been intimidated hearing uh, Jacob talk about some of the complexities of this. It's it's uh, very accessibly written with pretty short chapters, and uh, the framing is very consistent and uh, and simple. So no footnotes, um, nothing of that. Just I yeah I do uh, refer you to literature like by Dan and others. 
but I'm not really getting in the weeds of all that kind of stuff. So it is accessible, I think. Thanks for yeah. that, guys. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing me on, and I hope your readers find it useful. I find your stuff useful, especially you, Dan McClellan. Keep up the good work. You are doing you, amazing things, and we all in the SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature, owe you a, a, an immense uh, gratitude for bringing scholarship to light, but also answering some really silly stuff out there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for, for the very kind and humbling words. I, I appreciate it. It's been um, quite a whirlwind since uh, this uh, award from SBL for public scholarship. Um, and I've been very, very touched by how many people have come up to me and told me uh, at SBL, and not just this year, but the last couple of years, yeah. that, that they think this is important work and they think I'm doing a great job. Yeah, and yeah, that, and, and that means the world to me. I was there when the president, the incoming president, Tamar Eskenazi, Dr. Tamar Eskenazi, came over to you and and wants to work closely with you now and and bringing you to help us rethink the future of our field. In a, you're a very creative thinker, Dan, and I want to say this: you're also a humble person. You really, um, I think, your success is because you're. It's not about you; it's about you know the truth and helping others and. And I think that comes across to people like Tamara and others who are who want you to help us in a more, not just the public facing scholarship, but for us as scholars to start to rethink of how we're how we're doing stuff and why are we not having the impact and how. By the way, also how your work with these people informs scholarship. Right, you have so many new ideas because somebody has a good idea out there who. They didn't go to, didn't write it in a journal article yeah. or someone has a really terrible idea, which makes you <laughs> think of an alternative. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you very much for that. that. That means an awful lot. And I, I have to stay humble with this face. So I don't really have a choice. <laughs> Please but, uh, have, but have a few dinners with him and you'll see how humble he is. Yeah, everybody, you have, I feel this like, oh my gosh, you're such a celebrity and people are wearing beards just because Dan is wearing a beard and they got all kinds of <laughs> Love it. I love it. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jacob. Friends at home, if you if you would like to become a part of making this show go, uh, helping us produce excellent uh, programming like this, we would appreciate it if you if you can to become a patron over on patreon.com slash data over dogma. Uh, if you would like to uh, contact us about anything, you can write to us contact at data over and uh, we'll see you again next week. Bye, everybody. Data Over Dogma is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. It is a production of Data Over Dogma Media, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.